This morning we're diving back into our series in Jonah. We're going to be spending our time in Jonah 3 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. Jonah 3 is, uh, basically what Jonah 3 does is it presents us with two ways to live. There's, there's the life of rejection and the life of repentance. All of us in this room have been called by God in his irresistible grace to respond to his message, to his good news, to his gospel. And, and as we unpack that today, we'll see that we have two choices in how we respond to that message. We can either reject it or we can repent. And through it all, through this chapter, through the entire book of Jonah, as uh, Dan and I have tried to emphasize the grace and glory and holiness of God absolutely permeate every single word of Jonah. And so the big idea for today, the big idea for Jonah 3 is that the word of God calls us to a life of repentance. The word of God calls us to a life of repentance. And so without further ado, I'd, I invite you to study uh, with me Jonah 3. Uh, would you please, uh, let's, let's read that together. Jonah 3, starting right at the first verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days! And Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What these first five verses of Jonah 3 are telling us is that repentance is required. Here we see the call to repentance. We see what the call to repentance is. And the first thing... Uh, that we see is that the call to repentance is patient. Right off the top in verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Second time. This isn't the first time that Jonah's been told what to do. It's the second time. And it comes right, this one comes right on the tail of his disobedience, his punishment. Right on the tail of that. And there's no hint of disappointment in the Lord's tone. There's no, there's no sigh of frustration. There's no passive aggressiveness. The Lord is, is patient as he calls Jonah and as he calls us to repentance. Parents, how, how patient are you when you have to tell your kids to get off the TV again? Husbands, how patient are you when you're exhausted and your wife wants to talk about something? Wives, how patient are you when your husband just will not help get the kids to bed. Kids, how patient are you when your brother or sister will uh, not give you the TV? Employees, how patient are you when that one coworker drops the ball again and makes you look bad? Not as patient as God is with us when for the second, tenth, one hundredth, one thousandth time 
we go back to that same sin. But the call to repentance is patient. Romans 2 says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Think about that. The, God, the way that God leads us to repentance, to transformation, to life change is by letting us experience and relish and be completely overwhelmed by his patience and kindness towards us. And his call to repentance is patient beyond all understanding. So after Jonah hears this call, the first time, he runs away. He brags about his religiosity to the sailors on the boat to Tarshish. After all of this, The Lord is patient with him. Arise and go to Nineveh and give them the message that I've given you. And so I do need to point out as well, there's patience, but there's also the other side. There's the wrath of God upon sin in, this chap- in, the, in these first five verses. Jonah wasn't lying about uh, God overthrowing this city if they hadn't repent. He is a holy and just God, and he cannot let sin go unpunished. Would, would a Supreme Court justice be just if he let a murderer go free? No. And so God will not let sin go unpunished forever. So although he is patient, his judgment does come. And for Nineveh, they had 40 days. For us, we don't know. The Bible tells us that no one can predict the time or the hour when Christ will return, but when he does, justice will be rolled out Sin will be destroyed and sinners along with it. And so God is patient, absolutely. He's so patient. But don't take advantage of it. We don't know when the timer is going to run out. And like the Ninevites, repent of your sin now. They had 40 days and yet they responded to the call to the life of repentance immediately. And so God is patient, yes, but he's also just. The call to repentance is also indiscriminate. Or in other words, it's for everyone. The very fact that Jonah is even going to Nineveh in the first place uh, is, is proof of that. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, before Peter had his dream about Jews and Gentiles uh, being experiencing the gospel, before all of that, When God was working in uh, ethnic Israel, Jonah is sent to a pagan country to tell them the message of God and to call them to repentance. And and this call doesn't just stretch beyond political and ethnic boundaries. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So Jonah keeps, or not Jonah, Nineveh keeps calling, getting called that great city. In chapter 1, that great city. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Now Nineveh was a great city. It was three days journey. And I kept wondering why this phrase kept getting repeated so often. Like, okay, we get it. Like, it's a big city. And then I read the last part of verse 5, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And so 
Who is the greatest person in this great city? Nineveh is, at the time, maybe the greatest city on earth. Assyria was the world's superpower at the time, and Nineveh was its capital. As far as anyone was concerned, the Assyrians ruled the world. Nobody had a better military. No one was richer. No one was meaner. No one was tougher. No one was smarter. And so who is the greatest, who are the greatest people in this great city? It would have been the king and politicians and royalty, bureaucrats, billionaires that were rich beyond belief. The greatest people in this great city were the top dogs of the world, men and women walking around in designer clothes, wearing jewelry that costs your annual salary, driving whatever the horse equivalent was, was of a Rolls Royce. The greatest people in this great city were the highest class of elites that you could possibly dream of. And, and also the least. Who are the least of them in this great city? Homeless beggars who were blind and deaf. Disabled men and women. Orphaned children. Ridden, people ridden with disease and trapped in a cycle of poverty that was completely impossible to get out of. You know, the least of them would have been taken advantage of and exploited in every single way you can possibly imagine. And if they weren't being exploited, they were being ignored. The least of them would have been the lowest class of outcasts that you can possibly dream of. And yet, when the greatest people of this great city and the least people were confronted with this message of the gospel, with this call to repentance, what happened? They take off their clothes, whether it was Gucci or a third generation homemade hand-me-down, and they put on sackcloth, itchy morning clothes. They are all the same when faced with this call to repentance, because the call to repentance exposes our sin, that, that deep, gross, hidden part of ourselves that we don't even like to think about, much less let anyone else know about. And for the Ninevites, it didn't matter if they made a million dollars a year or lived off of scraps, whether they owned 10 houses or couldn't pay rent, whether they had 30 years of education or didn't make it past grade two, God's call to the life of Repentance is indiscriminate, and it is for absolutely everyone. And so for us, no matter if our salary is, is six digits or three, no matter if our skin is dark or light, no matter if our report cards have A's or D's on them, no matter what we've done, no matter our gender, no matter who or what we feel like, the call to the life of repentance needs to bring us to our knees because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, his perfect standard, and our sin makes us all the same in the eyes of God. None of us deserve heaven. All of us deserve hell to be overthrown, like Jonah says, and yet the patient mercy and love of God can lead us to repentance. In 1 Samuel 16, 
when Samuel's looking for the next king of Israel and he goes through all these big, strong, tough dudes uh, and then finally comes to David, this scrawny wretch, God says to him, that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that is a very comforting and very scary verse to read, depending on uh, what's going on in our lives. It's encouraging because God doesn't care what you look like. He doesn't judge you by the standards that other people do. Like we've just talked about, none of those things, finances, social status, intellectual capacity, none of those things. He looks at your heart. But also, he looks at your heart and he, he sees who you are. He sees our deepest fears. He sees who and what we seek approval from. What we spend the most time thinking about. What makes us angry and sad and happy. He knows where our hearts truly are. And we can fool a lot of people into thinking we're something, into thinking that we're something that we're not. But God is not tricked. He doesn't judge you based on what anyone else does. He sees your true self and he knows who you truly worship. And so do you know why this message is for everyone, for the greatest and the least in society? Because Jesus, who is the greatest person in the universe, became the least of humanity in order to give us hope. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The highest king was killed like the lowest criminal. So that lowly sinners like you and me could be forgiven and saved. amazing something else we see in verses four and five uh, and it's a great thing for all of us who are christians we're uh, supposed to be talking about jesus we're supposed to be like it says behind me showing and sharing the love of jesus christ and uh, it's kind of learning from a bad example jonah's gospel presentation here is i've seen better uh, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You've probably heard gospel presentations like this if you hang out in uptown Waterloo at all, or if you go to downtown Toronto. Uh, there's a few people that like to talk like that. God, Jonah's gospel presentation sucks. And um, yet, the next line of that gospel, of, of that verse, is, and the people of Nineveh believed not Jonah, but God. And so what this means for us is that other people's salvation is not up to us. God never says to Jonah at any point in this book, give them the message I tell you and make sure that they believe and repent. Jonah's job is to just give them the message, to call them to the life of repentance, to tell them about God. So J.I. Packer has said one time that you know, the best way to make sure that we are faithfully evangelizing isn't to count the number of people that are converted by what we say, but it's just to make sure that we're doing it, to make sure that we're faithfully making known the gospel message. And so it's the same thing for us. If you're a Christian, your job is to just share the gospel. 
hopefully with a bit more care and tact than Jonah, but whether or not people believe is not your responsibility. Their negative response isn't your fault, and their positive response isn't your achievement. It's all about God. We're just the messengers. And so like it says behind me, we exist to glorify God by showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. And so in these first five verses, we see that repentance is required. And it's required, again, because there are only two ways to live. There's the life of rejection or the life of repentance. And, and so in giving the Ninevites this call to repentance, Jonah has, has made it clear to us and to them that repentance is required. And next in the following five verses, we see that repentance must be realized. Or in other words, the response to this message is practical. Let's move on, and we'll see uh, what the realization of repentance looks like. So the king of Nineveh models this beautifully, uh, models what the life of repentance is beautifully. And if you've been a bit unclear on what repentance looks like up to this point, this is where we have those questions answered. So let's read verses 6 to 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The power of the message of God is incredible. Here we see an evil king uh, brought to his knees in humiliation and humility when faced with his sin. Just picture, picture in your minds, like the mighty king, the, the king of the greatest city of the greatest country on earth. Here's the word, and he gets off his throne, takes off his expensive royal clothes, and puts on sackcloth and sits in dusty ashes. He is ashamed of what he's done, of how he's ruled, of laws and decrees that he's made. And the first thing he can do when he hears the call to repentance is to just grieve over his sin. Does evil and injustice grieve you? Does it break your heart? Does does it cause you to mourn? I hope so, but but how often does our own sin grieve us? How often do we actually mourn over our sin? Genesis 6, 6 says that when God looked down and saw the sins of humanity, he grieved in his heart. Our sin should truly sadden us. And you know, I think that Many of us don't mourn over our sin because we don't 
often know how to mourn very well in our culture. As many of you know, I work uh, part-time at a funeral home, and there are a lot of families that come in, and, uh, you know, everyone reacts differently to grief, but a lot of families come in, and there's people that are, like, laughing and joking and, and generally not taking kind of the solemnity of the event seriously, and, and I don't think it's because they're not sad. It's, it's because they're afraid of grief. It's, and so they mask it with joking and laughing and, and kind of whatever other escape mechanisms they can do to not think about kind of how terrible it is that their loved one has died. And I think a lot of us have escape mechanisms when it comes to facing our sin, to, to grieving over our sin. Maybe it's busyness. My schedule is just so full that I, I never have any time to think about sin or anything spiritual at all. Maybe it's your phone. Every, anytime I've got a spare moment, I, I'm on my phone and I'm scrolling through social media or checking sports stats. Maybe because uh, I, I, I don't want to think about what I did earlier today. And maybe, this is, a, this is a tricky one, maybe it's just drowning yourself in guilt. You, if I feel ashamed enough, then I can just think about how bad of a person I am. And I won't actually deal with this sin. I'll, I'll just sit in this kind of self-loathing. You see the difference there? Grief, grief and shame are, are not the same, although we kind of tend to intertwine them sometimes. This, this self-pity, this guilty feeling is, is one that I think a lot of us uh, think is biblical grief. I feel bad, so it's, it's grief, right? But not really. Drowning ourselves in guilt oftentimes turns the focus onto ourselves. How bad we are, how useless I am. doesn't go anywhere past that. Biblically, grieving over our sin is saying like David, God, against you and you only have I sinned. It's grief because we've offended God, not just stewing and feeling bad about ourselves. And so it's a fine line, but I think it's definitely one worth doing some introspection on, worth thinking about as we grieve over our sinfulness. Am I sad because I've offended God? Or am I sad because I feel bad about myself? It's very easy to be angry and upset about, you know, the sins of those people a long time ago. You know, the, the residential school system, slavery, wars. It's easy to get angry about those terrible people that lived a long time ago, but Way too often, we're, we're so desensitized to the sin that's in our own lives and the wrong that we do every day. If our sins don't make us grieve, then I, I, I really think we have some introspection and prayer to do. The, king's, uh, the king of Nineveh's repentance is further realized practically in the, in the decree that he makes in verses 7 to 9, he kind of puts meat on the bones of his grief. And so he tells his people to fast. He orders that their livestock don't even eat or drink water. And this is huge because fasting and going without water is a huge health risk even today, let alone back then in the hot, humid Middle East. But having their animals fast was a financial risk as well. These were people's equity. They spent lots of money on these animals and they used them for travel and for work and for food. 
And so having their animals fast was financially risky. And everyone is, is to wear this like sackcloth, this uncomfortable, itchy potato sack, basically. He's kind of putting meat on the bones here. He's showing the sincerity. He's not just, you know, grieving and feeling sad, but he's putting action to his words. And then in verse 8, we get one of the best explanations of repentance in the entire Bible. So let's just read verse 8 again. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand. First, let them call out mightily to God. Repentance is, has to be sincere, and it involves grief, grieving over our sin, wanting to do better, but it's a lot more than just an attitude or wishful thinking. It's substantive. It's an action. And it's calling out mightily to God. Well, for what? Well, it's calling out to him in confession, Asking him for forgiveness, asking him to change us, to change our hearts, to reorder our priorities. We don't have what it takes in and of ourselves to will ourselves into being better people. Sure, you know, maybe our, it lasts for a bit, but it always ends up failing. When, but when we pray repentance prayers, it can, it can be as simple as this, God I am so sorry for the wrong that I have done. Lord, change me. Repentance, it needs to be this honest calling out mightily to God, and it's, it's so much more than just an attitude. Repentance is an action. And finally, the substance, the true substance of the life of repentance is the lifestyle apologizing to God, saying these words, praying to him, and then going back to the same old thing isn't repentance. So, so look again at verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Turn from his evil way. And from the violence that's in his hands. Remember, Nineveh was, or Assyria was a violent, war-hungry country of people. I mentioned uh, in the sermon on chapter 1, they were, they've been called like a nation of terrorists. They would do terrible things to people. And so the king, when he's confronted with his call to repentance, he recognizes that their violence against other people is evil, and he urges everyone to turn away from that way of life. And that's when repentance becomes real. It's when, it's when you and I begin to live differently. It means, it means rejecting our own way of life completely and living the way God wants us to. That's the life of repentance. And, and this doesn't mean that if you and I ever sin again, that we didn't repent. It just means that we need to repent again. The life of repentance is a daily commitment to the way of Jesus. And Jesus himself tells us that it's a recurring daily thing in Luke 9 when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Every day we get up, we get to decide how we're going to respond to this call. Will we, will, will we reject the call or do we once again choose to live this life of repentance? It's up to each and every one of us. <clears throat> and finally, the 
best part about the life of repentance is that it is the life of hope. So verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. God sees the life of repentance. And he relents from the judgment he was planning on bringing down on the Ninevites. Why? Because a life of sin does not go unpunished, but the life of repentance does not receive judgment. And so when Nineveh repents, God relents. The life of repentance is the life of hope because there are only two ways to live. There's the life of rejection in the life of repentance. We can choose to reject this call to the life of repentance. And in doing so, we reject God. We get to live however we want to. We can do whatever we want. No one has to tell us what to do. We can live it up. But one day, one day after we've lived this life of rejecting God, he will reject us. Depart from me. I never knew you. That's the end result of the life of rejection. On the other hand, the life of repentance may not always seem as fun as the life of rejection. We can't do whatever we want. It's hard because people will look at us differently. They won't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's a hard decision to make to follow Jesus and live this life of repentance because of the fact that it's a daily decision. It's not just a one and done thing. It is not the easier of the two ways to live and yet One day, after we've lived this life of repentance, we will see the Lord face to face, and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The call to this life of repentance is a patient and indiscriminate call. It's the life that is sincere and substantive. It's practical. It's difficult. It requires discipline and it requires each other. We can't do this on our own and that is why it is so amazing to be a part of a church where we get to talk with one another and bear one another's burdens and pray for one another. We're here for each other. This life of repentance asks a lot but it gives back so much more. And so, if you've never thought about this call to repent, if you've never thought about how you're living, this is, this is the chance you have, one of the many. This call requires a response. There's no option for fence sitting. There's only two ways to live. There's a life of rejection and a life of repentance. There's the life of hopelessness and the life of hope. And this life of hope is for you. It does not matter who you are, what you've done. God is calling you to live this life of repentance. Jesus once said, I love this, I came so that you may have life and have it abundantly. What life is he talking about here? This abundant life, this this life of so much is the life of repentance. It's the life of hope. It's eternal life. And so it is for you here and now. If God can save Nineveh, a city of literal murderers and terrorists, 
He can absolutely save you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And so all we have to do is to respond to that call. We choose repentance. We choose life. We choose hope. Would you please pray with me as we just pray to this amazing patient and holy God. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is Reformation Day and the history of the legacy of men and women that have gone before us to emphasize how crucial and foundational your word is. God, your word transforms and it heals, it convicts, it encourages us. And so, Lord, with with this chapter in Jonah, with Jonah 3, would you do what you want to do? Would you help us to respond to this message like the king of Nineveh did? We humble ourselves and grieve. We call out mightily to you for forgiveness and life change. And we commit to living differently. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.